0: Thank you, India. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Like uh, India said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who is visiting for the first time. I see a few new faces. So glad to have you here with us. And also welcome to anybody who might be listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Well, I have the privilege, as India mentioned, of continuing a series that I started uh, several weeks ago, called, Can We All Just Get Along? And if you've been tracking with us uh, over the last several weeks, you know this, Can We All Just Get Along? is a call to peace, right? It's a call to civility, and it's an important title that we've given our annual relationships series. And so for those of you who are regulars around here, you know that every summer we pause to talk about our relationships because we believe that they are excuse me, vitally important. We say almost every week here that our purpose in life, our purpose here on earth is to do two things, to love God and to love people. And so what we can gather through the scriptures uh, is that one of the most important things that we can focus on, is hu- on, on, on as humans are our relationships, particularly our relationship with God. But equally important are our interpersonal relationships with other people. And if you've ever hung out with people, you know people can be hard to get along with. I know you're not hard to get along with, but other people can be hard to get along with. And so if we don't have some wisdom, some insight from heaven as to how to relate to one another, how to get along, then uh, we've somehow corrupted our purpose. We're not really living these functional good lives, as we call it here, that God has called us to live. And because of that reason, we peel back each summer and we talk about relationships. Why? Because our relationships matter. And as we've said week after week, the goal of this series, at least one of the goals, is to impart what we call relational wisdom. We define wisdom as skill in living. And so the wisdom from scripture, the wisdom from the Bible, the wisdom that Jesus speaks is designed to help us be more skilled at living life. And a big part of that is interacting with other people and loving each other well. And so there's plenty of relational wisdom in the scriptures. And our goal through these series is to tease that out and help you uh, get on track in your relationships. We started this series weeks ago by talking about the importance of honor, how honor is foundational. It's like the very first step. You can't love well uh, without honoring people, seeing them as people of value, made in the image uh, and likeness of God. You can't, can't love well and relate well to other people unless you start there. We've since talked about forgiveness, loneliness. We've given you some biblical instruction as to how to apologize, how to watch your words. Last week we talked about honesty and truth-telling. This week we'll continue our relationship series by talking about marriage. By talking about marriage, it's just, I mean marriage is easy, right? Those of you, marriage is easy. You you chuckle because you said, so "Pastor, you just got done talking about honesty and truth-telling." That is, marriage is not easy. And because it's not easy, it's precisely why we need to carve out some time to talk about it. Marriage, the God-ordained union between man and woman, this, this union that God loves, this institution that God himself created. And I'm here to tell you in case you've got some misinformation, I'm here to tell you in case you've had a bad experience or in case you've observed some really jacked up marriages, I'm here to tell you, remind you, maybe inform you that marriage is a good thing. Right? Marriage is a good thing. And I'm not naive to the fact that the brokenness and sinfulness of this world could skew our picture of the gift of marriage. It's 2018, we live in a very uh, uh, self-fulfilling culture that values independence, it scoffs at interdependence, and it looks like, ma- it looks like marriage as something that is optional. Uh, marriage and commitment between men and women is something that, hey, if you're into that sort of thing, if that's what, if that what you know, gets you excited, if that's what you want to do, then, but, but, but I'm telling you, it's got, marriage is a good thing. It's a God-ordained thing. And as a married man myself, I've been married about 13 years. 13 years, right? Okay, 13 years. It's just just gone by so fast. I just, sometimes I don't keep track of it. But marriage for me has been one of the most stretching experiences of my entire life. And that's not any commentary on my wife. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. God's greatest gift to me, apart from salvation, is this woman right here. In fact, I don't know how I manage to tie my own shoes some days. I'm I'm wearing, you know, I don't don't have any laces in my shoes, but I don't know how I get things done without her. She's such a blessing to my life, Um, such a miracle, a a picture of God's mercy and grace and and his great love toward me and our family and our future. Uh, But it's been one of the most stretching experiences of my life. Uh, one of the, the, the most profound growth opportunities for me has been my, my marriage. And at the same time, my marriage has been one of the most constrict, constricting and constraining things in a good and healthy way because commitment tends to do that, right? I tell you, if you're going to put your face towards something, I put your back toward other things, Right? And so there is an expanding and a maturing and a growing that happens in helpful, healthy marriage. But there's also a limiting of options, uh, some constriction and some constraining that happens in marriage. And oftentimes, especially in the beginning or especially when you hit those transitions, it can be like really challenging and really, really difficult. I've seen great examples of marriage. My parents... Uh, being great examples. I've seen great, wonderful examples. I've also seen horrible examples of marriage, which is why I think it's helpful and even necessary to talk about it in context of the kingdom of God and in the context of an institution that God designed for our benefit and not our detriment. A passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 10 verses 6 through 9 really frames what marriage is and how it functions. The Bible says this, But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. Like This is like God's bright idea. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And so this idea of one flesh really frames well what marriage is. Two independent lives, two selfish people, I'll say that for lack of a better word, with their own cares and their own interests, their own different trajectories are joined together into one, right? Joined together into one. I've talked to people who had the misfortune of being divorced, and the way many of them describe it, it's like being torn in half. I talked to a good friend of mine, and he said, Gino, that's exactly how it's supposed to feel. If you've truly been joined to one flesh, if something or someone comes and separates that union, you should feel like you've been torn asunder. And so this frames for us what marriage is supposed to be like and why it's so hard. I deeply believe what I believe. I deeply like what I like. I love my independence. I love being able to make my own choices. I thoroughly enjoy not having to answer to anybody. And then this beautiful woman comes along. All of a sudden, I have to answer to her just about everything. It's painful. It's uncomfortable, but but that's part of it, right? And so this particular passage helps us you know, do away with this sort of fantasy of marriage with the soft edges, you know, like you see on TV. And just marriages, people skipping through tulips, pausing ever so, you know, periodically to just sniff the roses and then you pick back up and you... Now, there are periods of that, but I think that marriage can be summed up as very hard work. Very hard work. I just want to put that out there today, Right? And so what I want to do this morning is take helpful wisdom and instruction from Scripture as well as my own personal experience, and I just want to talk to you about uh, the things that I believe you have to have in order to have a great marriage. I think God wants us to have great marriages. Do you agree with that? I think there's a measure of reality that we have to assign to that phrase. But I believe that God doesn't want us to just limp through our marriage, just limp through and just barely make it. I think he wants us to have great, great, God-honoring, fruitful, life-giving marriages. And I want to talk briefly about how we can do that this morning. I want to look at a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5. Some of you recognize that chapter uh, as uh, some really helpful wisdom on marriage. Would you meet me in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning? We're going to start at verse 21 and go through verse 33. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of your rows. Feel free to use that Bible. Also, we'll be projecting the scriptures on the screens for you to follow along as well. While you find Ephesians 5, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the families and singles represented here. Uh, Father, I just thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord, that you confront us when you want to confront us, you challenge us, you call us higher, you call us to be transformed into to greater depths and heights of maturity. And so, Lord, I pray that today would be no different. There's no coincidence that we're gathered here today or that you're listening to this through our podcast. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would use every word for your glory. Father, would you go before us and make the crooked places straight, anything that might cause us to bristle at the truth? or to avoid honest self-reflection, Father, I pray that you would deal with it in your own special way. Put power on these words that you've given me to speak and move the preacher out of the way so that your truth and light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says this, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Talking about married people. For wives, this means submit to your husband as to the Lord, and all the brothers said, Amen. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything there is more. Verse 25, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church, He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church and we are members of his body. And so this is a really um, important text, a text that we've covered here before. And, and for those of you who are churched and you've, uh, you're have uh, familiar with church life and teaching, you, you've probably interacted with this passage before, or maybe you've done marriage devotionals at home. And so you've likely encountered this passage before. And so I, I say, uh, as I often say whenever we engage a familiar text, that don't feel like you know all there is to know. Don't feel like like you got this mastered and that God can't show you something different. Because as I say often, this is what the living word. And there's always something fresh and new in Holy Scripture. But this passage is central to our understanding of what marriage is and how we're supposed to relate to one another uh, in the institution of marriage, and central to our understanding of what it means to have a great marriage is this whole idea that we 're supposed to what submit to one another. This is important to say early and often, because you can sort of get one side of this thing and it can get twisted, right? Depending on who the preacher is, or depending on what the religious context is, you can hear a side of this, and they can skip over important sections of this, but when you synthesize all of this, it is God's heart within the context of marriage that the man and the woman submit to one another. We call it mutual submission. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Wives, this means submit to your husband. As unto the Lord. And whenever there's problems, I should say, most of the time when there's problems, as we do counseling and as we help God and disciple marriages toward the good life together, it's often the case that uh, one or more parties have decided that they are going to do their own thing that they don't owe it to the other person to submit their way or submit their opinions or submit their desires unto the other person, that they're not supposed to mutually work some things out. And there's always friction when we as married folks seek to abandon this call to what? Mutual submission. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do, is to submit your way to another person, especially in the West, if you year toward independence and you feel like I, I have a say, you know, I don't have to answer to you. It's one of the hardest things you can do, but you won't have a great marriage if you don't start here. And so as a springboard for our thinking and our pondering and the dispensement of wisdom today, we start with this concept of mutual submission because from it flows all of the other wisdom that the Lord has to offer. And so what I want to do today is I want to spend the next few minutes giving you six pro tips uh, for a great marriage. Six pro tips for a great marriage. Let Let me just say that I believe that there are many, many more pro tips than what we're going to cover today. But these six that I want to talk about are just like, it's where my heart is right now. Like, if you rain me down a month from now and say, hey, Gina, let's go get some wings and give me, give me your six pro tips, this list might shift a little bit. There might be some, but in the, right where I am right now, right? These are the six that I believe that are on my heart that I think that if we leaned into these six things, uh, we would have uh, or begin to have or be on our road to having a great marriage um, and so I just want to tick them off. And I believe that I put them in a pretty good order, right? Mm-hmm. And so the first pro tip that I want to give you this morning is to put Jesus first. Put Jesus first. I careful when I say things like this, because this can sound like preacher talk, right? Like this is what preachers supposed to say. They always preach supposed to say, put Jesus, and all you do, put Jesus first. But I say this with all of the pastoral weight and authority that I can muster. I say it with all my fervor put Jesus first in your marriage. The very act of marriage itself is, as we see in Scripture, an act of worship toward God. And this is helpful and necessary to say because marriage in just the daily left foot, right foot, the the routine of marriage, it it could seem deeply unspiritual, right? right? I mean, it, it, it can just come off as being deeply unspiritual. It, it can fit into a segment of our life that we feel is separate from our spiritual life, feels separate from our daily act of worship and devotion to God. But this passage helps us draw into focus That the reality of our marriage and how we relate to one another, how we submit to one another, is an act of worship to God. And therefore, Christ is very interested in how we relate to one another, whether we relate well or relate poorly. Verse 21 says, and further submit to one another, right, because it's the right thing to do, out of reverence for Christ out of reverence for Christ. That verse alone marries two seemingly unrelated things. Uh, My life of commitment to my wife, her life of commitment to me, and the seemingly unrelated thing where I worship Jesus with all that I have and all that I am, and from that flows everything else. This one verse marries these two seemingly unrelated things, and in that marriage of these two ideas... We find that Jesus cares about our marriage, but it behooves me, it behooves my wife, and anybody under the sound of my voice to put Jesus first. I want to grab my wife and say, baby, you, you need me to put Jesus first. Don't ever try to position yourself in that number one seat. You need me to put Jesus first. You need me to idolize him and not you. You need me to jump through hoops to please him and, and not to put you in that number one slot. You need that, right? right? My wife, as lovely as she is, as beautiful as she is, as helpful as she is, as meaningful as she is, she cannot be an anchor for my soul. And during the good times, I want to please her. And during the good times, I want to make her happy, right? But, 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 but Jesus is this sort of constant standard, right, that runs throughout the entirety of my life that points me back to truth, that points me back to my commitments, that points me back to honesty and points me back to, 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 to careful consideration of others. Like This is just like an anchor for my soul. And if I've got the Jesus part right, I have a better chance of getting the Shannon part right. That's my my wife's name, Shannon. If she's got the Jesus part right, she has a better chance of getting the Gino part right. And so this is helpful because it's really easy to idolize marriage. It's even easier to idolize and pedestalize and worship the person that you've married. But in doing so, we haven't budgeted for the human effect. That person going to make you mad, right? That person might let you down. That person might expand around the waistline as, you know, and get wrinkly and old, right? You would just be honest today. I'm a little husky myself. I feel like, you know, I could say that, right? But who doesn't waver? Who doesn't change? whose standard is the same today that it was thousands of years ago. Like, I I need something constant that sets the tone for my life and sets the tone for my marriage. Above all of that, Jesus will always, and I mean always, push me toward doing right by my wife. His standard of excellence and truth and honesty and careful consideration. He will always, always push me toward the commitment that I made to honor her and to love her and to respect her and to protect her. He will always push me there. And so you've heard me say dozens of times that what sits in the number one seat of your heart, what sits on the throne of your heart, what is priority number one, will always, always govern the things that flow beneath it, right? And so the problem with putting a person in that number one seat, even if it's your lovely spouse, is it will it will always corrupt your relationship with God. It will always corrupt your relationship with Jesus. And I have just learned that it's helpful and necessary to consider that I need my wife to put Jesus first. She needs me to put Jesus first in my life. Because Jesus initiates and therefore continues, as we saw in Romans 12 a couple of weeks ago, this transformational thing that takes place once you come to faith. This maturation that happens once you come to faith, like it's Jesus that initiates that, and it's Jesus that perfects that and sees it through as we walk out life with him. Nothing else can produce that transformation. Nothing else can grow you up, as it were, right? And so because Jesus is the only one who can initiate that and carry it through, we need to be committed to putting him first in our marriage, not just in our words, but with our deeds and actions as well. Second thing that flows from that, second pro tip when it comes to marriage, is as quickly as possible, as fast as you can get there, get over yourself. As fast as you can get there, get over yourself. I don't know if it sounds nice. That can sound a little harsh and off-putting, but I could not come up with a better way to say it that captures the essence of what I think is necessary in order to have a great marriage. If Jesus initiates the transforming work in our hearts... The fruit of that transformation is humility. The fruit of that humility is that you see God the way you're supposed to see him and you therefore see yourself the way you're supposed to see yourself. The fruit of that is that you begin to see others in the way that you're supposed to see them and, and honor them, people of dignity, of much worth and value. You, you, you sort of get into this process of getting over yourself. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give you each of you this warning. Excuse me. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluations of yourself, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. He continues in verse 10. Love each other with genuine affection and take what? Delight in honoring others. We've said it a different way Another uh, translation translations. It says, and, and, and try to outdo one another in showing honor. It pushes us toward a place of humility. And one preacher said once that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Which basically means that one of the things that marriage seems to accelerate, particularly godly marriage, it accelerates our descent, like our health, healthy descent, into a place of humility, understanding who God is and who we really are. We can honestly see our faults and our failures, and we hold others in high esteem. Marriage should be working that out in you. Marriage is a master class if you let it teach you. If you let it teach you, it's a master class on humility. It's a master class on lowering yourself to the point where you show honor and you think of yourself less. Some of you are struggling today in your marriage because you haven't gotten over yourself. One of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, listened to a sermon by him. And he was talking about how marriage, like if you, if you engage it properly... Particularly in the, you know, within the realm of getting over yourself, there are three fruit that grow on the tree of a person who is really pressing into humility, which is the byproduct of engaging in committed marriage together. Three things. I just want to run through those three things in the spirit of driving home this point. This is one of the three fruit as you get over yourself, as you begin to see yourself the way you're supposed to see yourself, is that you can be criticized without being crushed. You can learn to be criticized without being crushed. This is helpful and really helpful to understand because marriage really, like if you engaged it right, it, it should be iron sharpening iron. When I think of iron sharpening iron, I don't think of like some picture of, you know, a cat being stroked or something delicate. I see two hard metal objects grinding against each other, sparks flying everywhere. It's loud. It's awkward, right? And this, to me, like really adequately describes like this iron sharpening iron. That a helpful part of marriage is honesty. C- criticism, ho- hopefully constructive criticism, but like that's not designed to make you feel better about yourself. Maybe in the end, maybe down the road, a year or two later, like when you can look back, oh, that really helped me grow. But in the moment, it was like, that, that hurt. Man, that, that was irritating you put a mirror in front of me you reflected back some things that I couldn't see about myself criticism it's kind of a dirty word socially but like it's, it's part of like the marriage not to mention if I'm doing this right like I left everything to be with this woman she left everything to be with me now she got a pretty good deal I think that's not, that's not the point Right? <laughs> All to say I am heavily invested in our collective outcome. Which means I'm, I I I got a say in this thing. I got a say in your attitude. I got a say in your appearance and how you dress. I got a a say in how we steward our resources and how we raise our kids. I have a say in your individual and collective spiritual life. I am heavily invested. I have a say. And that's not a one-way street because I'm the man. This is mutual submission. She's heavily invested in our Outcome, and so she has a say into my attitude, my appearance, my my financial stewardship, how we steward our boys. She has a say. And loads and loads of time that say will express itself in hopefully constructive criticism. Maybe I don't really like how you said that to me. I thought you were rude to that waitress. I noticed you haven't been reading your Bible. You used to read your Bible, everything, you used to pray everything. I, I just noticed you haven't done that. I, I noticed that you're pitting one kid against the other and you're comparing them. in the wrong, Like, like this, this doesn't make you feel good. Like, this is what, I don't, rec, I don't recommend you do this, you know, or candlelit dinner on date night. Like, but this is like part of it, right? And one of the sure signs that you have gotten over yourself and that you've budgeted for your humanity is that you can be criticized without being crushed. Do you know any people who can't take anything bad about themselves? It could be obvious to everybody else. It could even be obvious to them, but they never walked away from criticism going, you know what? Thank you for sharing that with. I didn't see that. I need to be called out on. Do you know somebody who is never okay with anything other than flattering words? Now, if that person is sitting next to you, just play cool. You don't have to give it away. (laughs) But here's the deal, though. That's annoying, right? That's annoying. It's annoying if you meet a stranger that way. Imagine you have married somebody and you are collectively heavily invested in the outcome and this person cannot be told anything other than something flattering about them. Like, how annoying is that? Sometimes we have come by this defect honestly because, you know, somebody along the way never told us no. Somebody along the way never told us, hey, we weren't good at that sport or that maybe, maybe you deserve to be fired or that your attitude stinks, or that your breath stinks, or that dress is a few sizes too sh- small for you, or those pants are a little too tight. Maybe along the way, everybody told you, Oh, that's great. Oh, you're killing it. You, yeah, hey, you're fantastic. And some of you grew up with parents like that. And so it was a rude awakening when somebody you got married to somebody, or you went to work for somebody who, who didn't see you through those lenses. But one of the surest signs that you have, you're descending into this hopeful, helpful place of humility is that you can hear something unflattering about yourself, and it's sure to come if you get married and not have it crush you, and not automatically put a person in a doghouse. Like, it's one of the surest signs, and some of you go, that's me, I I got an issue with that. I don't want to spend too much time here because I got a lot to share, but, but... Listen, you are handicapping your marriage because you train the other person, don't tell me the truth. You train the person who God has installed in your life to be a full-length mirror that if anybody else is going to feel like they got to be polite and lie to you, like the person installed into your life, your spouse, is like God's gift to you. He's your full-length mirror. And that person gets the week of silent treatment every time they tell you something unflattering about yourself. You are like crippling one of God's greatest tools to you, and that's, a, that's something we need to work on. Criticism should sting. It should burn. It should hurt, right? But it's, it's designed to call you higher and to increase your self-awareness and to eliminate blind spots, not to crush you. The second fruit... The second sign that you've gotten over yourself is that you are able to criticize without crushing. And this is one of the sure signs, people, that you've gotten over yourself or that you are in that process of being transformed because why? You see yourself for who you really are. You see that person as a person made in God's image like, like... of much value. I want to outdo myself in showing honor. And so, since I know that criticism is a part of this deal, how can I do it in the kindest way possible? How can I speak righteous truth? How can I say uh, this comment about her attitude or about this, that, or that other uh, without having to crush her? I just tell you that one of the things I've learned. Uh, with regard to how to measure maturity in other people, like if I if I only had one thing to look at, I mean, typically you have a number of things and you synthesize the data and you say, okay, this person is a but. if I only had one thing, the thing I would look at is how you criticize. Oh, all oh, the details, oh, 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 the measuring stick that that is of your maturity level, like how you criticize. Isn't it true? Because if I honor you, and if I love you, and if I see you as a person of, of that deserves honor and dignity, I want to be as precise as possible when I criticize you. Right? I, I want to use instruments of precision. I want to use a scalpel to deal with the defect. If I'm far off, I want to. I want to get one of those really nice snipers' rifles, an instrument of precision. Because a mature person wants to target what's what's the issue, right? An immature person, they don't reach for the scalpel. They reach for the machete, and they just hack at you. They don't grab the sniper's rifle. They grab a a sawed-off shotgun, and they just blast at you. Or they get a few sticks of TNT and and roll it out old school, and they just blow the whole thing up. You ever heard an immature person criticize a movie? That movie was terrible. Now, If you get down to the bottom of it, they didn't like the music in that one scene, right? An immature person criticized a song. That song was terrible. What they didn't like is like the second verse. They didn't like the second sentence in the second verse, but it was all terrible. An immature person criticizes a meal like they didn't like the appetizers, but the whole restaurant stinks and like, right? They're probably serving rat meat, right? It's just, let's blow the whole thing up. But when you let Jesus help you get over yourself, you begin to see yourself as a flawed person. Listen, I mess mess up all the time. I don't have a soapbox to stand on. Plus, I care about this person. Let Let me just only target, let me work hard to target only the thing that I have an issue with. So instead of saying, you look hideous today. Why, why are you wearing it? You look terrible. I would say, hey, that, 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 those shoes don't really match that, right? Or you've had an attitude all day. All of a sudden, when I, when I target the thing, I say, hey, when you came home on you know, your lunch break, man, you were silent. You were kind of short with me, right? I, I didn't blow the whole person up, right? I, I, I'm able now to give criticism without crushing does it make sense what I'm saying? And the third fruit that you see as you learn to get over yourself is that you have, you know, this growing capacity to forgive. Uh, I say growing capacity for, to forgive because as you sit in the brine of like the transformational juices of Christ, to use a really awkward like word picture, um, like you become more and more aware of the depths which Christ has forgiven you and rescued you, your flaws and your shortcomings, the things that God just looked over to see the heart that's like the real you, and you go, my goodness, how could I withhold forgiveness from somebody else? I love this person. I want to be slow to anger, rich in love, just like Jesus. I want to be quick to forgive. Now, we got to talk about some things. I got to criticize. I got to point some things out. But I want to be quick to forgive. My capacity and the speed at which I forgive, like, increases. And as I tick through these things one by one, some of you are saying, I haven't gotten over myself at all. And this isn't something that comes with age. You can be 70 and still, you know, in remedial classes on this. This is something that happens only when you yield to the transforming work of the Spirit in your heart. And this isn't something that you can manage in your spouse or try to make happen in your spouse. This is the only only thing that you control in yourself. You can take criticism without being crushed. You can give it without crushing. And that your capacity for forgiveness is ever swelling, ever increasing, right? Now, this only happens when you truly put Jesus first. When you fear him and him alone. You get over yourself. And the third thing is that you bring your best self home. You bring your best self home boy do we get this wrong our families our kids our our spouses can be so familiar they can be so common to us right you let your hair down right you can strip out of your work clothes and you know really walk around in your underwear if you want if that's how you get down it's just, you're at home right just I'm at home there's usually lots of forgiveness and just understanding. I'm at home, right? And so you feel like you have to be on at work or on at church or on in the marketplace. And what can happen if you're not careful is you will give the best of yourself to the people that matter least in your life. The people who put up with the least amount of your brokenness, right? Because at work, you try to hide that because, right, that might mess with you, you know in your casual circles, social circles, and even at church, you might learn to put on airs, or you might not learn to show your full circle. But like the people who live with you, the people who suffer long with you, like they tend to get like the scraps. They tend to get like, like when you're fused, like a short five, six o'clock when you come home. They tend to get the, 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 the grumpiness and not your full attention and And I just think that I haven't seen people have great marriages that don't bring their best self home. Now, let me just say, this is hard to do. It is hard to do. As a preacher, this is hard to do. You should know that, like, I was just assaulted with this message. tempted to give you points that I could feel better about myself in presenting, right? I'll help you understand, I'm on the same side of the table with you, like the Lord confronted me with this reality and especially like challenging for me because as a preacher you feel like you're doing noble work this is the Lord's work and so hey Lord, this is just sort of the life this is what we signed up for and Jesus said no it's not your family doesn't deserve like the scraps of your life because you're doing my work. Like, flip to the pages in Scripture where it says "like you can give your family the scraps. And so the Lord just ran me through with this. And so many of us, if we're honest, we will confess that we are tempted to give our best to work, and our best to friends, and our best to church, to be thoughtful and sensitive and patient and complimentary with everyone else Your spouse falling all over yourself. Oh, those nice earrings. Did you get a new hairstyle? Oh, that's fantastic. And here, your wife, you haven't said a kind thing to her since '97, and you haven't said an affirming thing to him in, in years. Everything gets your full attention. You're so devoted at work, and you're so devoted at church, and you're just known as Mr. Reliable, but your head's in the phone the second you get home. You're rushing your kids through their stories, and you're rushing your wife. Get to the point. And Your fuse is so, so short. You're so angry all the time and so sarcastic, Like, and you're just like, this is who I, this is just who I am. You're not like that at work. And I see men all the time. You just, you're so mean. They got, they got to tie you up to feed you at night. And you're short with everybody. You're throwing things and you can't be, this is who I am. I got an anger problem. You ain't have an anger problem with your boss when he came in at closing time and put those files and folders on your desk. Like you got a hold of yourself somehow. When a big brother, thick brother at the gym took your bench when you went to get some water, you didn't, you didn't lose it on him. <laughs> you just, you just wait, yeah, wait. We'll do something else in the court, right? That's crazy. People can't help it. They just, anybody, you know, somebody bigger than them, they just, they're indiscriminate. But what you find, if you really pause and think about this, is like you've, you've decided where you're going to be nuts, right? You've decided where you won't be restraint excuse me restrained and and use your better judgment and be gentle and thoughtful because you've decided that you can be that way at home and not that way at work and so the lord says you want to have a great marriage you're gonna have to work for that peace you yeah, got to bring your best self home. Now, for some of us, this means, this means like bringing your whole paycheck home. Now, we're getting into the weeds now. now we just, listen, we, we, we have a common purse at our house. I know everybody doesn't roll that way. Well, we just have a common purse. There's no bank account that, you, you know, off to the side, my money, your money. Listen, every, listen, every penny, every nickel... Is, a, is in a common purse. And I don't care whether I make it, you know, money from a speaking engagement or I get a producer's fee for making a record or my check. Listen, it all goes. I, I don't even see my money. My wife is just a master at paying the bills and budgeting our money. I don't even see it. I'm lucky if I just get a few dollars to get me a burrito at Chipotle She just handles it, right? <laughs> But some of us, man, listen, have your check spent before you even get home. Again, some of us don't roll this way. and You don't have this sort of issue. But like, man, listen, I have seen, you know, where where there's fidelity and with all secrets and lies. There are footholds where there's things that can be hidden and little bank accounts where things aren't available to be. Like, bring, bring it all. Bring the best of you home. And I can spend hours talking about this, but I think, I think you get the idea. I think the spirit has like, you know, grabbed a hold of the part of your soul that needs to really respond to this. And there's a shaking and a stirring happening because we would all confess that at some point we haven't bought our best self home to our spouse. They've gotten the scraps. And that won't do if you want a great marriage. I'll keep pressing in. Fourth thing is that you have to be a student of marriage. A student of marriage. And I added in parentheses your marriage. You have to be a stu- Some of us are just go-getters. In your particular trade, in your particular craft or devotion, your field of study, you are always going to seminars. You're always on YouTube looking at some thing. You know, you're, you're a musician and you're always trying to learn a new scale, learn a new riff and you're just constantly devoted to like growing and getting better at your craft and all that sort of stuff. And if I were to ask you and you to answer, honestly, what's the last thing you did to work on your marriage? What's the last thing you did to like grow in your marriage? You would just... Crickets. The most most important relationship outside of your relationship with God, the most important one, tends to get the less, least amount of ongoing education, the least amount of focus and study. Tell you a secret. I want to be I want to be the best preacher that I can be. I'm I'm a student of preaching. I listen to sermons constantly, podcasts on YouTube. I, I, I just want to perfect my craft of preaching because this is, this is my life's work. This is an instrument that God, this is, I, just, I love it. I'm always trying to get better at it. But I go, like, what have I done lately to get better at, at my marriage? What have I done? You know, how am I a student of marriage? And so, so, so some of you who have pretty good marriages, I actually think I have a pretty good marriage. You ask my wife, maybe she'll give you the same answer. <laughs> um, but, but even those of us who are cruising at a pretty good clip, like, like I think the Lord calls us to, to look into the matter and to be students of marriage. And if I were to press in a little bit deeper, I would say that we're supposed to be a student of our marriage which for me looks like that I have a continuing education in the person and work of Shannon, my wife. That I press into deeper places of understanding and knowing of her, a complex, ever-evolving being that I would look into in this decade and might discover something that I haven't already discovered that might help me, like, love her better. I was listening to a master class one of my favorite musicians, Michael League, He's a bass player uh, for a band called Snarky Puppy. And and Michael said that if you ever listen to a song that you get tired of, and you don't listen to that song anymore, he says, really what's happened in your brain is that you have gotten familiar with all the things that used to be interesting about that song right? All this really cool, you know, drum beat, this, this, this lick that they play. Oh, I love how the ensemble sings, right? But as you roll that song over and over and over, that becomes so familiar, so common to you that it's not interesting to you anymore, and, and you cast it aside, right? And I think that really sums up what can happen in marriage, right? That we just become so common and so familiar, with the, not to not mention the, the neglect that happens, when we don't bring our best self home and all, and there are this rich wells, treasure chest of things that were you to discover it, you'd fall in love all over again, but you haven't, you haven't become a student of him in the way that you should. And you haven't become a student of her in the way that you should, and you've gotten uninterested. You've lost interest and you've lost focus and the intimacy wanes and the conversations get shallower and all of a sudden you're just doing business. You're just getting food on the table. You're just getting the kids out and up and to bed. You're talking about the schedule and you've ceased to find like the interesting aspects that make you, you know, you see the emoji with the hard eyes. Like, I I want to look at my wife like that. Well, that only happens when I study her. When I study her, and I don't mean, you know, in in some kind of dirty way, right? We'll get to that in a second. (laughs) But I mean when I am a student of her. My ears, I'm listening for the, the, the phrases and the words and the intonations that give me things that are nuanced and cannot be detected with just a casual glance. I am a student of her to the point where I can hear what she's saying even when she's not trying to say it. Now, my heart has to be arrested. I'm going to go a little over today. My heart had to be arrested in this, on this front simply because... I came into marriage like I'm a communication major I plan to communicate for a living if you want something say it you want me to know something say it I'm not trying to read your mind woman (laughs) but as I've begun the process of sanctification and (laughs) transformation and I've getting over myself. It's my job to hear what she's saying even when she's trying not to say it. It's my job to dig for the hidden treasures. And she's got to work to say what she means and mean what she says, just like I do. We talked about that last week. But, 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 this is work. There's nuance, there's There are things to discover and co-discover. It's hard work. And if I am too busy, and if I haven't reserved uh, enough emotional energy and enough relational energy, if I haven't budgeted well for my day, then I won't have the capacity and the bandwidth to be a student of her when I come home. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want to move past this, but I want to make sure you get it first. Students of marriage, but particularly students of one another. There's lots more I could say there, but I'll move on. Fifth thing, I'll move quickly. Have lots of sex. Now, listen, this is, I know a lot of preachers, you know, really like trying to be on the edge and trying to be hip and unduly controversial. This isn't that sort of thing, okay? This isn't that sort of thing at all. all. This is just a reality of one of the major components, God-installed components of marriage, is physical intimacy with one another. So we've gotten this far on the list, and if we haven't been tending to the things before this, putting Jesus first and let his heart be in us, We haven't gotten over ourselves, right? We're letting the criticism crush us and we have been crushing with it. We haven't been wrestling with a growing capacity to forgive. We aren't bringing our best selves home and budgeting for the reality that I got to save some for this man. I got to save some for this woman. Then by the time we get to this, it's, 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 It's it's not even important anymore. When I say have lots, I know different couples, people have different drives and different levels of interest. But let me just tell you, and I don't plan to camp out on this, but let me just tell you, like if you're not working on this, if you're not mutually submissive in a wholly healthy way to one another in this realm, like this this will eat your lunch. And some of you are to a point where you need to talk to somebody, uh, or you need to get some counsel, some third party mediation. You really got to do a really good audit of your life because it's not just this thing, and I, there's an interconnectedness to all of this, right? And if this isn't right, it's a gaping foothold for the enemy, right? It's a it's a gaping foothold for me. I just make my own life like this. Got, we got to work on this. I'm not saying we need to work on this. I pretty good. You know, you understand what I'm saying. I'm just saying this is something that I care deeply about, and with this constant conversation about because this is deeply meaningful to me. I want to be in this thing forever. Put me in a box is the only way I want this thing to end. You understand what I'm saying? And so that's important to me. And so we work on that part. We got a budget. We got to put it on the calendar. If we got to put a chair in front of the door to keep the kids out, this is happening, okay? And, I, and it's kind of funny, but it, it's, it's just the reality of what it is. And we, you know, do a deep dive into this subject. It may be coming later in the year, but there are podcasts on our, uh, on our website that really deep dive into this subject. And I Uh, for the sake of time, I'll press on, uh, but this is really, really important. And it merits a conversation. It merits, like, like an autopsy if that part of your marriage is dead or dying. And I think this reality gives way to the sixth and final point that I want to make, and that is if you want to have a great marriage, you have to seal the cracks. You have to seal the cracks. And worship team, you can come up. I know I've gone over. You have to seal the cracks. Well, listen, marriage is hard enough. It's, it's hard enough. Well, all of these other things meddling in the thing and complicating it further than what is necessary. And so sometimes sealing the cracks means, like, you've got to get your mother-in-law out of your business. I'm, I'm a, I have a great mother-in-law. She's here today. It's her birthday. She's fantastic, okay? That's not like anything, okay? But I'll say it this way for the sake of time, like, I know what makes me say wow, right? I know what I'm tempted to take a second look at, Right? I know the the people and the personality types that don't care anything about this ring on my finger. I know the pressing nature of a job in ministry and the job in itinerant speaking and the job at national leadership. I know the ways that those things can press in on a marriage. And if I am not diligent, and at times I'm not, if I'm not diligent... These things will press in and smother what we have. And make no mistake, friends, there is no longevity in ministry without longevity with this woman. There's no fruitfulness in ministry, at least that God would be pleased with. There's no fruitfulness in marriage when you got some flirty thing happening on the side. Like, come on. You can keep that up for a while, but that thing will be a roaring African lion and it will eat you and your lunch. Amen. And so I say that to those of you who've installed these things or you've allowed these things to stay within the realm of your marriage. There are people, there are places, there are things. And the Lord would just cause you to just get out the cock and just seal the cracks. You've got relationships. You've got a work husband somewhere or a work wife, which I think is just the dumbest thing you could you could even mention if you're trying to work on your marriage. You this flirty little thing that you look forward to. you just look forward to our hugs, you know, and our coffee together. It's like, what do you? Or maybe it's a, a porn addiction or a budding some type thing that you, you haven't disclosed, that you feel ashamed about, that you're keeping me see. And it's like it, it's slowly eating away. And you can't possibly bring your best home when something else is grabbing at it before you even walk in the door. You can't, you can't be that way. And so what I know is that this type of sermon begets some difficult conversations usually on on the other side of them. But these challenges are designed, what? To help you press into a place of wholeness and health and healing. And I know, again, I know I've gone over and I'm going to land this thing, but I just think this is something we need to wrestle with. I want our church to be known for having great marriages, great marriages that honor God. And some of us, all of us, We've got work to do. And so with that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the confrontational nature of some of the truth that you set before us. And Father, some of us have had to take a long, hard look at our marriages today and a long, hard look at the time and the energy and portion of ourself that we give to it. And Lord, we just... We just submit our way to you. We submit our marriages to you. Some of you are considering engagement, your dating. But we just submit all of that to you, and we just ask, Lord, that you would have your way. Father, help us to get over ourselves. Help us to put you first. Help us to maintain you as like the standard for how we relate to one another. And Father, for the things that we've allowed or disallowed, and for the, the things that we've allowed into our life that are corrupting our relationship with our spouse, Father, would you help us to be walking out of married life with one another that you would be pleased with. That we would leave a legacy for our children, Lord, that you would be glorified in our married lives. Come, Holy Spirit, as we worship you today. Continue the healing work, Lord. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.